you'll turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, we are in James chapter 5. We're almost wrapping it up this morning. It's been a glorious and wonderful time of uh, learning and growing in faith and understanding as we've walked through this text. We're in James chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 13 through 18. Follow along as I read the text this morning. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit." No mistaking. It's clear that this text is about prayer. No mistaking that. Prayer is mentioned in in every one of the verses here. Now, I recognize some of you are excited at this prospect to hear a sermon that is clearly based on prayer. You, yourselves, in your own lives and experiences with prayer have come to expect a lot from the Lord through prayer. Not only yours, but the prayer of others on your behalf. You desire those prayers in your life. You treasure them. You seek to minister in it and to be ministered to yourself through it very often. Now, I'm going to describe three camps here of, of a person where you might fall into in terms of, of prayer. I just described to you that, that first camp of people when it regards to uh, thinking about and cherishing prayer. Some of you will find yourself in that first camp. There also are some of you that are thinking, all right, a sermon on prayer. Let's do this. Let's do it. I I always need a good word for the Lord. I love to hear a good word from the Lord. I need it. I really do want to grow in a faithful way and being faithful with prayer. I don't think I'm very good at it, but I want to be. There are varying degrees of those that fall into this second camp. There are also some of you in the third camp. And don't take the third camp as uh, you know, a camp of losers. That's not what this is. But we have different experiences with prayer. We, we, we come to expect it differently. We're all growing in faith. There is this third camp. And those of you that are in this third camp, you're thinking, okay, a sermon on prayer. I understand that the Bible promotes prayer, that my church promotes prayer, and I do pray. I do pray when it dawns on me to pray about this or that, whatever this or that is. But prayer and the joy that people express about it, I admit I really don't get it. regardless of the camp that you fall into within there. And you may find yourself bouncing back and forth. I don't know. Regardless of the camp you fall in, let me just offer this word of encouragement. The power that Scripture accredits to prayer, that God has granted prayer, ordained by God Himself, that power is based upon the might, the goodness, the unchangeableness, and the sovereignty of God alone. Power is because of Him. The call that we have here in our text is for faith in practicing prayer. James knows there are some, perhaps many, among these churches that he's writing 
that are not confident about the aspects of prayer. You know, in, in this passage, he aims to persuade his readers into becoming faithful practitioners of prayer. That's his goal here. He wants to persuade to truly realize its value. So if you quietly to yourself consider yourself to be somewhere in that third camp that I described, that you need some convincing, then now, dear friend, is your opportunity. See this as an opportunity. This is James's purpose here in this text, to persuade you, to convince you about employing the gift of faithful prayer in your life. Not only for yours, but for others. To the grace of God alone. And really, truly, who better among the old faithful saints, among the apostles even, than old Camel Knees himself to persuade this heavenly business. That was his nickname. Did you know that? James's nickname? He had a nickname. I reckon they all did in some way. Uh, legend has it that he was so often on his knees in prayer that he developed calluses on them. Hence the name Camel Knees. James knew very well the power of God that had been ordained unto prayer. And he lovingly desires his brothers and sisters to lay hold and minister in this means of grace. It is a means of grace. Now, I assume that you all, those of you who trust in Christ, that you can see the wisdom of listening to what God has to say. If the reason he is saying it is to convince you of something that you need to believe and do. Now, I believe one clear outline that James has assembled for us here in this passage is to be comforted to be thankful, to be healed, and to be persuaded. All this in the good work of faithful prayer. So let's cover that first one here. To be comforted. Now James is, at this point in his letter, he's ready to wrap things up. This letter to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Oh, those churches scattered abroad. And in doing so, it is very appropriate for him to say some final words on prayer. Now, he's already emphasized throughout the letter this topic of prayer. Now, he means to communicate his simple hope for them in making use of prayer. Now, he begins in verse 13, and that first part of verse 13, by saying, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, suffering is something James has already described to the churches of Christ as they bear the name of Christ in their daily witness. It comes to them, not only in dealing with their own sin, that double-mindedness that he talked about, the hypocrisy, the partiality, that mean tongue, oh, that mean tongue, but also external forces, the, the persecution he talked about that persecution from the rich man. That as well. That suffering. Suffering was a reality that these people were facing. In many ways, simply because, again, they wore that name Christian. Here we see James's pastoral heart shining through. Oh, he loves the saints. He is taking the things that he has said on prayer already, and here he's summarizing it. And he's giving it one last moment in the spotlight. In many ways, he's, he's, it's like he's saying, please, please hear me. Is any one of you in trouble? In fact, that's how the NIV translates it. It says, is any one of you in trouble? We know what trouble looks like. We know trouble. It's financial st 
stress, it's financial problems, it's parenting woes, it's persecution, desperation of some sort. You know, sometimes it's a sinking depression. Trouble is. It's living a country song in many ways without the vices, we hope. We know trouble. Yet, James, as he has already made very clear, that trouble, it could be due to persistent sin in your life. We know fully well, don't we, brothers and sisters, that God chastens those whom he loves as a father. Yeah, the trouble we face because of the sin that we have been entertaining in our life. And praise him that he uses his chastising um, ways and his, his trials that he brings upon us to shake us out of it. But yeah, sin could be the part, of them, the, the part and, and parcel of our troubles. And the trouble that he speaks of, James, sometimes it can feel like it won't go away. It just keeps coming back. He knows this. He recognizes it. Often it's that persecution that we bear for being the name name of Christ. We're called to suffer in this life as our master did for our good. God uses these things. James has talked about that. Sometimes it feels like it won't go away. It's not by accident that he, at this point in his letter, at the end, and the way he orchestrated it and put it together that he summarizes his remedy of prayer just on the heels of exhorting the brethren to be patient in suffering doesn't patience and prayer go together so often it does be comforted be comforted by exercising patience in suffering while praying while praying The apostle knows here that prayer can sometimes be the last thing on a Christian's mind in the midst of suffering. We can be so internally focused. It can be the last thing on our minds. You know, too much, even too much of a good thing in this upside-down, topsy-turvy world of ours, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing, especially with our idol-producing hearts. We can turn a good thing into a bad thing. For example, we tend to associate being practical with being efficient and resourceful and effective. Indeed, it is. Uh, who doesn't want more of that, you know, being efficient and effective? Especially, especially when you're in trouble. Maybe you're in trouble because you're not very disciplined and you would like to be more resourceful in your life with the time God gives. Now, we can adopt a mindset that there are better uses of our time, more practical things to do than pray. You know, how about worrying? That's always so helpful, isn't it, to fill our time with worrying? James is telling us, no, none of that. Stop it. Stop looking within. Just pray, dear ones. It's not a blind faith that God has given us. Speaking of being practical, it's a bit ironic. J.C. Ryle says that prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. Do you all know what practical religion is? It's a good, good theme to be studying, practical religion. It's, it's living out your religion in ways that point you to do good works, to rely and trust on Christ. In some ways, it's putting the meat on the bones, but it's always done in faith. And it's always looking to Christ and depending upon Him. Prayer is a part of that, of our practical religion, putting it to good good use, depending on it. We must very often be patient in prayer when we're going through our troubles. Uh, Very essential in James' command Earlier in this chapter, in verse 8, he said, establish your hearts. And to do so through Scripture and faithful prayer. 
strengthen your heart in that communion with God through the Word and prayer. Next, in our text, the latter part of verse 13, James has a very wise recommendation for someone who is not perhaps in the midst of suffering, but someone who is cheerful. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, it should be the aim of the believer, in accordance with James's earlier instruction, to count it joy when meeting trials of various kinds. To count it joy. So, beloved, it is possible, it is even encouraged, to have a kind of cheerfulness when suffering. That makes no sense to those who are in the world. But in Christ, it makes all the sense. To be making use of Christ as our resource in all situations. Calvin once commented that James, and here in verse 13, that he means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. In times of suffering and in times of cheerfulness, God's inviting us to him. Now, I have a confession. I can't read music. I can't read music. Now, this is just a suggestion. It's certainly not a thus says the Lord. Now, if you can impart the skill of at least reading music to your children, then do it. I regret that I hadn't had a mind to do this myself. Some of my kids can and some can't. I suppose some of them are just too much like me. But there are times, and maybe this describes you too, brother, sister, when I'm alone with the Lord, I have my copy of the Trinity hymnal with me, and I want to include some singing in my personal worship. Now, I'm limited to the songs I know, and you know what? That's okay. That's fine. But there are so many good songs that I don't know. Yeah, that's okay. You know, I can get by with what I know. But music is a language given by God that just makes sense to know as much about it that is practical for a person to know. You may not be able to do like Miss Laura can on the piano, but to learn it. I know every good boy deserves fudge, but honestly, I don't know what that means either. All right, enough of that. That's not James's point here. It isn't. That's not what he's making. That's his point. His point is that we should, we really must express our thankfulness to the Lord for his mercies. Don't forget to do that. When God has answered your prayer, thank him. His mercies are new every morning. We have reasons to be thankful every day for his amazing gift in Christ every day. God desires that we come to him for our needs, for everything. He is glorified in that. He delights in it. He, again, is glorified because we acknowledge him in all our needs. So why not then be cheerful for such a friend that we have in God, such a friend we have in Christ, who has such a jealous love over us and for us and is good and powerful. We meet him in his word and in prayer. And so often those things go hand in hand. Singing praise is a form of prayer when our hearts are engaged in it. That's a good reason, by the way, folks, for choosing the best songs to sing in corporate worship. Songs with lyrics that communicate Scripture, communicate God's Word to us as we sing back to Him and our fellow saints. Being thankful 
It's an antidote to sin. Did you know that? It's an antidote to sin, being thankful. It dispels the thoughts of finding sufficiency in things other than in Christ. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It stands to reason. It stands to reason then that we should work at being cheerful. Work at it. Some of us are better at it than others. Work at it and offer up songs of praise. Even prayers of thanksgiving. I know I want more of the peace of God in my life. Do you see Paul's prescription here? The kind that surpasses all understanding. The kind of peace that envelops my heart and my mind in Christ. That providing a shield of protection against my self-pity, my complaining, my envying. A cheerful heart directed toward Christ is a heart preoccupied in heavenly, eternal things that's not weighed down by harsh, earthly realities. Next in our passage, in verse 14, and it's really verse 14 through the first part of verse 16. this, This part goes all together. James has said that he wants the church to be comforted, to be thankful, and now he says he wants the church to be healed. Picking up again in verse 14. James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The simple message of these verses, the simple message is seeking God's powerful healing through faithful prayer. That's the simple message. But a careful study of these verses, it brings up questions, doesn't it? It brings up questions of how the church is to practice this guidance. It's caused instances of no small controversy over the years. But brothers and sisters, it must not, it cannot, it should not divide us. One question here is, James prescribing a faith healing practice among the churches for those who are truly ill. Is James asserting that the faithful prayers of the elders will always be heard and answered by God with healing of the sick person. I don't believe so. A reason set in the counsel of Scripture and experience itself tells us that we don't always receive that answer to prayer that we want. Even when we know it's God's will. Not in the way that we want it, necessarily, answered. So sorry, folks. Aaron and I can't coerce God to give us what we pray for. 
And honestly, who would want that? Who would want that? I mean, considering how deceitful our hearts are. One person would be praying for rain when another person says, please don't give me any rain right now. That type of thing. Can you just imagine the havoc if that were true? The gist of what we have here in these verses is guidance in the prayer ministry within the eldership. Okay? And the guidance in prayer for self and for others. And with others. All with a view towards seeking healing in Christ Jesus. Now James begins by telling the sick person here to do something. To initiate this process with the elders to seek their prayer on his or her behalf. This faithful prayer. After all, it is the office of elder that is charged with keeping the flock of God. And by qualification, they are to be men of practicing faith. The sick person, James says, is to initiate the process, not the elders. Now this, this is likely because it's important for the suffering person to acknowledge his or her special need for prayer. Now he or she may be weak in faith. Perhaps as a, as a role, result is a long and debilitating illness. They are weak. And the person needs the strong faith of the elders interceding on his or her behalf. And as we see in verse 15, as it indicates, it is the faith that is exercised by the elders in their prayer, not the faith of the sick person that will save the one who is sick. Now please note here, hear me here, James is not saying that the elders cannot take up the initiative and go visit people in the hospital, that we can't have a ministry of visiting the people in the hospital and, and, and the like. He's not saying that. In fact, Every Sunday, if you noticed, Aaron and I, your elders will invite anyone who has a spiritual need to come join us and we'll pray over them. That invitation that we give, it's not exactly what James is talking about here, but we do offer that. By the calling for the elders to pray, this is reserved for serious conditions of illness or spiritual weakness. Serious conditions. James is not advocating to call on the elders for this special prayer, for less serious matters. When the person, you know, him or herself, should be faithfully praying to God or engaging with others for their prayers. This is for serious matters. And this call for the elders to pray is in faith. It's special because it comes with a promise for saving and being raised up. Now the question has already been asked. Is James truly asserting that God will raise up, especially heal the sick person when the elders faithfully pray for healing? What is James driving at here? Beloved, there are instances of possessing faith in knowing God's will. For example, we know it is God's will that we grow in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. Right? I hope you know that. We all, therefore, can pray in faith knowing that God will answer that prayer. In His time and in His way. Assuming we're not asking for this knowledge to be puffed up. Most of the time when the elders are called to pray for someone in a serious condition, the elders don't know what God's will is, if it's to heal that person or not. They don't have the, the, the faith to know what God's will is in that matter. Precisely, God is going to heal that person this side of heaven. 
Most of the time, they do not. That's why way it, that's because it's always very important that we approach prayer acknowledging, may your will be done, O Lord. May your will be done. But there are times when the Lord is sought seriously for his will in a matter that he does sometimes grant a clarity into what his will is. Even regarding the restoration of someone, this side of heaven, you know, of a person that is horribly ill. It's a rarity. I have had instances of being confident of God's will in a matter and prayed expectantly for God to answer my prayer. But I do admit that I have never had the assurance, never had an instance of knowing that God will heal or raise someone up from their sickbed. If these instances appear to be so rare, then why does James seem to just flaunt the possibility for healing that it's like a special formula that one must apply and then voila, you have what you have faithfully prayed for just because you called the elders. Why is he putting this here? Why is he wording it in this way? You know, so much damage has been done to those who are ill, seriously ill, and often weak in faith by so-called faith healers, making them feel rejected by God, and that if they were just the sort of Christian who had a strong faith, then they'd be healed. Driving that poor soul to think that Christianity must not be for them. These treacherous men engaged in this for-profit faith healing business, they trivialize our religion for means of fame and fortune. Their day of judgment awaits them. Even consider the damage done by the Roman Catholic Church and their right of extreme unction. They derive that right from this passage in part. You know, teaching others that they can say their canned prayer, perform their ritual, and therefore remove the sin of the dying person. Such a false hope. False understanding of this text. And before I move on, what does James mean by let them that is the elders, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Some faithful churches practice anointing the sick with oil in the name of the Lord, and some faithful churches don't. It is important, hear me, it is important to see that James is not commanding the practice And it's made clear in verse 15 that it is the prayer of faith that heals, not the anointing of the oil. Now, the practice of anointing with oil, in the New Testament times, it was often going to be olive oil. That practice was very common among the Jews in those New Testament times. And although some respectable theologians do believe what James is writing about, that the use of the oil here in anointing someone who is sick was for medical purposes. Some very respectable theologians believe that's what James is driving at here. Oil was used for such purposes. You know, consider like this, the story of the Good Samaritan. Oil was used for the purposes of that um, Good Samaritan on that wounded Jew and restoring him to health. But most likely, James, his inference to anointing with oil was meant to be a symbol of the faithful prayer of the elders over that sick person. Symbolic. It conferred no power. 
and does not persuade God either way. It was and is the prayer of faith that God has ordained. Beloved, with all, all these questions that we have from this text, we must be careful not to forget the forest for the trees. James is not trying to employ a bait-and-switch tactic here to get us to take his guidance. He's not promising something that he knows likely won't happen just to get his readers to stop, start praying. He's not, that's not what he's trying to do here. He knows the Bible is more concerned with the providential than with the exceptional acts of God. As Alec Montier put it, quote, prayer is a commitment to the will of God. And all true prayer exercise its truest, truest faith and patiently waiting to see what he has determined to do. You can go to God in your prayer and faith, and most often this is the matter in the case, not knowing exactly what his will is and still going to him in faith because the Savior that you're praying to the power and the goodness that you're relying on, the faith that you have in Him to do what He knows is good. He possesses the knowledge of what we need. The unqualified statement that the prayer of life will save the sick, that statement stands aside Many other similar affirmations that we can read in Scripture regarding prayer. In fact, it is the standard way in which the Bible makes promises about prayer. For example, in Matthew 18, verse 19, it reads, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. John 14, verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Such promises are intended to bring us with confidence into the place of prayer. What God can do according to His will, will do according to His will. The power that He has. We will only come to Him in prayer. They speak to us of a God who can do all things, who is so generous that he will withhold nothing from us that is good. His ears are open to every good word. His ears are open to us. But the one thing the promises do not encourage, in fact, they don't even allow, is that we should come into the place of prayer in a stubborn insistence that we have got it right. And that our will must be done in our way, in our time. In the prayer of faith, even when confident that we understand God's will in a matter, our faith is not that the promises will be fulfilled just like that. It is the faith which rests trustfully in the will of a sovereign, faithful, and loving God. Neither the sick person nor the elders are there to insist that their will be done. But to pick up and put that sick person within the total eternal security of the unchangeable, unchangely gracious will of God. Besides, Praying thy will be done in effect is to take away from, from our prayers the limitations imposed by our knowledge. We don't know everything. And what our needs are. We don't know what all our needs are. I much prefer God's will be done than my will be done. Even our proposals of what will meet the answer of our prayers. We don't know what the best way is. 
and by our sense of even what is best. Praise God, thy will be done. God is the one who is always faithful, good and all-powerful. We would be a fool to choose what we think is best over and against what God knows to be best. There is not weakness in praying, thy will be done. It's not a cop-out. Lastly, we look to what James commands in the first part of verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. Now, James is not talking about the gathering of groups in which believers tell it all. He's not talking about that. Again, going to Alec Mottner. He argues that the, Bible, the biblical position regarding confessing sin can be summed up in this way. He says, confession must be made to the person against whom we have sinned and from whom we need and desire to, to receive forgiveness. He says, there is secret confession to God because there are secret sins committed against God alone. Thus, secret confession. And next, there is private confession. Because some of our sins are committed against men as well as God. And must be confessed to that offended party. Thirdly, there is public confession. Because some sins are committed against a group. Like the whole, the local congregation. And therefore must be confessed publicly. There is an appropriateness to this. It is in this area of confession that James is moving. We have offended against a brother or a sister. And we must go to such a one privately. And confess in what way we have done wrong. Ask to be forgiven. And join in prayer for healing. Because the biblical principle is consistently that confession is due to the party who has been offended. It is due to them. And I challenge you, brothers and sisters, as we know often in these cases, we both, two parties have both said things that they regret and need to come clean on confess. Be the first to go and confess. Regardless of what, how you think that person's going to respond, be the first. Men, be the first in your marriage to come to your wives. No matter how wrong she is, no. Um, no matter how right you think you are, be the first that's part of being a leader. So easy it is for that pride to well up in us. Men, be the first. The believers whom James brings before us, likely it is that they have not met to engage in that mutual confession of secret sins. For the confession of such is owed to God alone. Rather, it's because they have sinned against the other person. And, and therefore, it's time to seek that opportunity in private fellowship to put things right. Because each has offended the other and they are ready to confess. They're ready to be reconciled. They're ready to be healed. You know what it's like to carry, when your bones feel heavy and weighed down. When the slightest thing turns you into a monster. You need to do some confessing to God or to someone else or maybe to a group. Search your hearts. Finally, in verses 16, the latter part of verse 16 through, the, through verse 18, the apostle wants the church to be persuaded in the power of prayer. He writes, beginning in verse 
16 part the second part of it the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit James wants the church to not only understand the purpose and the propriety in prayer, including its availability to the faithful of a God who listens, but to grasp at its granted inherent power to be persuaded to do so, that prayer made in accordance with God's will is powerful and effective. Powerful enough to move mountains. Powerful enough for ordinary, yet righteous believers to apply its benefits. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we are confounded by its promises. We know we cannot, or at least we should, we must not, we must know that we cannot force God to do something. No matter how strongly we feel about something, we can't force Him. God will always do His will. Because we know this, we can fall into practice of despising prayer. Of despising prayer. Now, sometimes we misunderstand what the word despising means. I'm going to take a quick moment to just talk about that because often, in, as you read Christian literature, especially the old dead guys, they use that word often. And you say, I don't despise prayer. I never despise it. To despise something is to devalue it in some way. So, yes. You have been guilty of despising prayer. In some way. James gives us the example here of the potential power of prayer in the life of Elijah. He does this to encourage us to grasp, again, at its granted inherent power and thereby be blessed. That's why he uses this illustration. Uh, He's already instructed us that in regard to prayer, We have not because we ask not. Remember that? And further, he says that when we do ask, we ask from a selfish motive and therefore not in accordance with God's will and therefore we don't receive it. So, what are we afraid of to enlist such a powerful arsenal against the flesh and the world and the devil? What are we afraid of in trusting prayer and utilizing it? I believe those Christians concerned, those Christians that are concerned with the honor that's owed to God and with our knowing our own propensity to glorify thyself, that we are afraid of crossing over in our theology and practice of our theology to that of that treacherous faith healer in some way. We're afraid of misunderstanding it in some way. Fear misleads us. Also afraid of believing on false hopes and leading others to believe on false hopes. Now these are things that we should dread to, dread to encourage in, in our faith, in our own practice, and the practice of others. It is a proper and right thing for a Christian that we should disdain crossing over like that. But, I, but don't think for a moment that the devil does not realize our own reservations about the power of prayer. He knows our reservations about the power of prayer. And he wants us to be ignorant about prayer. He knows of its devastating effectiveness against his wiles. By prayers of Christ... 
and faithful men throughout the ages. He knows that Scripture testifies and how God has ordained prayer to be a means of supplying grace in our lives. He knows this. So tell me, why wouldn't he try and use the treachery of some so-called faith healers to cause us to despise its means of grace? Why wouldn't the devil try to confuse us in the effectiveness of prayer? So much. So much so that we can be apt to gloss over Scripture that testifies to its uses and its examples and rather search for more earthly, practical means of comfort and resolution. I mean to tell you, brothers and sisters, and I'm not alone in this. I'm I'm even quoting John MacArthur on this. That there would be far less Christians making use of professional counseling or therapists if God's people would only engage themselves in papal prayer. If they would only call on the elders in faithful prayer. Prayer and the power God has ordained to it. Seeking God's will in prayer. Calling on them in these serious cases that we've talked about of suffering and sickness. This, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure John MacArthur is not saying this to discredit the appropriateness of offering someone serious spiritual counsel. We are encouraged throughout Scripture to get and receive and give wise counsel. But the power James speaks of, using Elijah as an illustration, that is applied to faithful prayer. Not counseling. James uses the great example of the power of prayer through this time-honored saint, Elijah. But there's a warning I want to give each and every one of you. Our heart has legalistic tendencies that we know God is working out of us. And one of those tendencies is to look at what a great, honorable man, such as Elijah, or others, and what they're doing and say, I got to do exactly the same as this guy. What these honorable and faithful men are doing. I got to do the same. And thereby, again, miss the forest for the trees. That error is, it's an error of looking at what others are doing and realizing that we can't do it like them. And since I can't, why bother? This is why James tells us that even righteous Elijah was a man with, like, with a nature like ours. Yeah, sure, we know God worked amazing things through Elijah and his faith. But Elijah, he still suffered. He suffered similar frailties such as ours. Depression, fear, anxiety, exhaustion, self-pity. Yet, he learned the lesson of prayer so that even in the midst of depression, he talked to God. In your depression, are you seeking God? He learned this. Even in his depression, he came to God. Now, we can think of men of prayer like George Mueller, Martin Luther, James the Apostle, Old Camel Knees. But if we think that in order, to, in order to effect faithful prayer in our life is to focus on the hours spent in prayer, then we will become discouraged and fall away from its practice. If we think we've got to get up at 2 a.m. in the morning and pray for a couple hours every night or develop calluses on our knees in order to attain to this ministry of prayer, granted to us, then our focus deceives us, and the weakness of our flesh is all that we feel. So why bother? We say, I can't do that. 
I cannot spend even 10 minutes in earnest prayer without being distracted. That basically I've wasted my time, and I'm sure I probably dishonored God in some way. Dear beloved in Christ, pick up your weary head and rest it on the back of Christ. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Those renowned men of prayer like Elijah, like old camel knees, and others who have faithfully ministered to others in prayer, if they spend hours at a time in prayer, it's because they have learned its power and effectiveness when done in faith in accordance with God's will. These are men and women who go to God's Word daily, not to fulfill a duty, but to seek the righteousness of God and His kingdom. To be close to their Savior, who has proven Himself time and time again. They're changed by it. They're matured by it. Hours in prayer, they're an outcome. It's not the goal. You could say those hours are simply an empirical measurement of their high esteem of prayer. Hours in prayer is not their focus. Their focus is communion with Christ in a specially ordained way because they truly love Him. I say this to encourage you, dear saint, to pursue Christ Himself in your desire to improve upon your prayer life. Pursue Him. Start by believing that He hears your prayers. It's a great place to start. It's an encouraging thing. He hears you. Even if you are weak in prayer and wrought with questions and doubt, He hears His precious child. Start by believing enough that God wants you to be faithful to minister in prayer for others and yourself and ask Him to help you to be that person. Yes, this does require discipline of time. But trust God to do that change in you that eventually, eventually may turn out a believer who's in hours of prayer at a time. See the value in it. That's why James is writing this, persuading you to see it. There are so many things that God has told us that in His will, what His will is on earth to produce. For example, a loving church. He wants a loving church. We know that. So we pray that we would love one another. Starting with yourself. Pray for wisdom in leading and serving your family. For the knowledge to know what is lacking. Be persistent in that prayer. God's ordinary practice in granting wisdom is providential. And it takes time. Which also tests your faith. We know He's doing that too, right? Hold on to Christ in the folded hands of humble prayer. He desires this from you. He desires this from you. So trust that He blesses such prayer. Beloved, are any of you suffering? Let Him pray. Be comforted. Are any of you cheerful? Let him sing praise and be thankful. God invites us to meet him in all situations. Are any of you in serious illness and because of it weary and weak? Call on the elders of the church to offer up the prayer of faith over you. We invite you. 
Are any of you in trouble with your sins committed against another? Then confess your sin to each other and be healed. Lastly, dear brother and sister, are you timid in your prayer? Are you afraid to commit yourself to it and trust in Christ and his promises to bless faithful prayer? Look at the example of a man whose nature is just like yours, just as prone to faithlessness and depression and self-pity, just as weary. That man, just like you, learned the power of prayer and rested in Christ through it. And amazing things happened. 